Hebrews chapter 8. We are getting there. Although we'll only deal with a verse or two today. Get back to our normal pace. We started moving too fast. I got nervous. Let me slow down a little bit here. Hebrews chapter 8. The title of this message is In the Room with God. Hebrews chapter 8. We're just going to read the first two verses and then talk about them. Hebrews 8 verse 1 says, Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, who is a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Let's pray. We thank you for this wonderful truth, Father, about who Jesus is that he is our great high priest that leads us into the holy of holies with you, into the throne room, into the tabernacle, not built by man, but built by you. Thank you that our Savior is exalted to the right hand of majesty on high. Thank you that we are seated in the heavenlies with him. And we ask that, Lord, you'd make this spiritual reality a practicality in our lives that you would teach us this morning about the throne room and the glory of the throne room and the wonder of the fact that the veil has been torn in two and the way in has been opened and that we at all times and all places have access to the wonderful God of the universe who is our loving, compassionate Father, who is the righteous judge, the one who will set all things right in the end. Thank you that we can draw near to him in this throne room that we can receive mercy and help in the time of need, that we can commune with a loving God in intimacy. Lord, make it a reality in our lives. We confess that there's often a disconnect, that we know this theoretically, but we often fail to draw near practically. Help us to do so, Lord, and that it would enrich our lives and so transform us that we would live more for the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask it together in that wonderful name that is above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So the author says here very simply, after a lengthy discussion of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, that's going to continue for the next few chapters. He's a typical preacher, you know what I mean. He goes on and on and on and says, here's my main point, and then goes on and on and on again, and you lose the main point, but every now and again he brings you back to it. He's bringing us back to it for a moment here and saying the main point is that Jesus, as a high priest, is superior to every other high priest that came before or was since the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And now one of the reasons he is superior is that he, that is Jesus, is able to take us, that is humanity, to where no earthly priest ever could, that is the throne room. Jesus Christ is able to take us into the very presence of God, where God is, the manifest glory of God in eternity and in practicality in our lives today, Jesus brings us near. We're told how we're brought near through the ministry of Jesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Understand that the condition of humanity before the cross of Jesus Christ was one of separation. 
even the Jews who were in a covenant relationship with God were separated from the presence of God by various degrees. And everything of the worship structure and the law as ordained by God in the Old Testament communicated separation. It communicated the holiness of God and how wonderful God was and that God wanted to tabernacle with his people. But as good as it ever got, there was still a separation between the people of God and their God. They knew that. And if the Jews were separated, who were the people of the covenant, how much more the Gentiles or all the other races. But now in the ministry of Jesus Christ, who came to die for the sins of the world, that he might reconcile the world to a holy God, we who were formerly far off and alienated have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And no other religious leader... No other system, no other work can bring us near to God except for the person of Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody is coming to the Father but through me. Now, we know that theologically as Christians, we agree with that. And we know that theoretically, but we need to begin to learn that practically. Notice it's in the past tense, Ephesians 2.13. We have been brought near. We need to develop a theology of nearness. We as his people need to be practicing the presence of God, as that old famous book says. We need to be learning in our daily lives to enter into the throne room and experience the benefits thereof. Now, remember that Jesus is depicted in chapter 6 as our forerunner. Let's revisit that concept. Chapter, chapter 6, verse 19. It says in Hebrews six nineteen, This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner, the New American Standard says, as a forerunner for us, having become a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Jesus has entered into the holy place, not merely the representation of the holy place, and we'll get to this as the rest of chapter 8 unfolds and into chapter 9 in the coming weeks, not merely the representation here on earth, but the true tabernacle in heaven, the dwelling place of God, Jesus has entered in because of the finished work of the cross and the resurrection as a forerunner for us. Now, because of his entrance, his ascension to the Father, very important part of the gospel, that Jesus died and rose again and ascended. Because of his ascension and therefore entrance into the presence of God, the fact that he's seated at the right hand of majesty, Hebrews 1.3 and Hebrews 8.1 says, we are assured access into his presence as well. We are assured access into the presence of God. Because Jesus went as a forerunner. Very particular Greek word here chosen by the Holy Spirit. The word is prodromos, prodromos, forerunner. It means very simply, one who comes to a place where the rest are to follow. 
one who comes to a place where the rest are to follow. It was used in all sorts of circumstances in the ancient world, scouts for an army, spying out a land, so on and so forth. But Jesus is the one who's gone to a place, namely the right hand of the Father, where we are to follow. This is important theology. We are to follow there ultimately and we are to follow there practically in our daily lives. Understand that in the former system, in the old covenant, in the worship structure of Judaism, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, which was just a representation of the one in heaven, but he would only enter once a year. It was only one guy, one time a year. And when he entered, he did not enter as a forerunner. He entered as a representative. He was a representative member of the population of Israel. He was going where the others would not go to represent those who could not go. He didn't go as one who went that we might go. He only went as a representative. Jesus comes with a different priesthood altogether in the order of Melchizedek and enters into the tabernacle not made with hands. That is, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, the majesty on high, and he goes as a forerunner with the intention that we might follow him. Now, in a sense, we are already there. In a sense, We are already there. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1 as we see that. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll pick it up in verse 18. Paul the apostle praying for the church here. It says in Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of his strength, of his might which he brought about in Christ when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul the Apostle is praying that we realize all the benefits that we have in Jesus Christ and that we would understand that he is seated at the right hand of the Father and that everything is in subjection to him and that he is the head of the church. Now how this looks begins to uh, unfold in verse 4 of chapter 2. Chapter 2 verse 4 now says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
in order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Notice what this passage says, that because of the work of the cross, in our laying hold of that reality by faith, we are now identified with Jesus Christ by the Father. And so positionally, we're in Jesus. And so if Jesus is in heaven, we are positionally in heaven. It's a done deal in the heart of the Father. We are already seated in the heavenly places so that God is able to show us his surpassing kindness, that he might lavish us with his love. Positionally speaking, theologically speaking, it is done, we are already in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Now, the adventure of the Christian life is laying hold of practically these theological spiritual truths. Letting the spiritual reality of us being seated with Christ in the heavenlies affect our daily lives, living out practically what we know to be true theologically and positionally. Positionally, we are seated with Christ. Practically then, we need to be experiencing the presence of God, the throne room of God in our lives. The idea of the throne room where Jesus has gone as a forerunner being the place where God dwells. Notice that it's called a throne room. That denotes a couple things. That denotes dominion and exclusivity. All cultures at all times have understood that the throne room of the king was exclusive. He just couldn't roll up in the throne room. It wasn't like he had open office hours, you know what I mean? That's not the way it worked. The throne room was very exclusive. And if you tried to enter the throne room without invitation, it would cost you your life. So the fact that it's a throne room denotes exclusivity. It also denotes dominion that it's called a throne room. The throne speaks of kingship, dominion, and authority. It tells us that God is in control that God is in control and that he dwells in a high and lofty place as he told the prophet Isaiah and yet he's near to the lowly and the contrite, the broken of heart through the ministry of Jesus Christ and that that exclusivity has become an invitation to you and I through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we need to be daily entering into the throne room where we will begin to realize that God is actually on the throne. It's not an empty throne. It's an occupied throne. That means that someone, the right one, is in control. We are living in precarious times. We're living in an interesting season and it's more and more important for us to know that God is on the throne and the less the world seems to make sense, the more we need to be able to say, God is on the throne. And the more we need to be able to not just say it, but practically experience. We need to be able to say, God is on the throne and I was there today. I was in the throne room today, saw Mary still on the throne, went in there and there he is, high and exalted, the train of his robe, filling the temple with glory and the world is weird, but my God is in control. 
That's what needs to happen. Now, the Old Testament worship system spoke of separation, but the New Testament introduces Jesus and an invitation. And we must realize that it is a heart of God that we dwell with him, both ultimately and daily. Jesus lamented the daily desire of God to be with his people when he stood over Jerusalem. And in Luke 13, 34, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often... Notice how often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not have it. Notice Jesus Christ, the exact representation of God, revealing the heart of God to us. How often God said, I wanted all of my little kids right here, just under my arms, under my wings, so to speak like little chickies just gathered in that warm, safe place where the mother hen would come and grab those little babies and hide them from danger, where they would feel the warmth of the mother and hear the heartbeat of the mother and all the worries of the outside world and the wolves and the scary things would fade away while they stayed in the shadow of the mother's wing. God says, I want to be like that mother hen for my people. How often I long for it. I want that to happen on a daily level. And then ultimately too, it is the ultimate plan and purpose of God that we might be with him in that way. Revelation 21, which pictures the new heaven and the new earth, reads this way in verses three and four. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. This is the message that the author of Hebrews is trying to impress upon his audience because they're experiencing difficult times. And there's a lot of tears and a lot of pain and a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear coming their way. And he tells them in Hebrews 8.1, here's the main point. The high priest Jesus Christ is better than the high priest of Judaism because he takes us where no other man could ever take us into the very presence of God. And that's God's ultimate heart for his people. And when we're in the presence of God, ultimately, he's going to wipe away every tear. He's saying to his Hebrew audience, I know times are difficult now and the world doesn't make sense under the Roman emperor and that it's hard for you to follow Jesus, but stick with him. He's gone as a forerunner. The intention of the word is that he will get you there and there will no longer be any death or mourning or crying or pain. The first things, these difficult things will pass and we will be in glory with him. Jesus is going to get get you there. It was such an important message for them, and it's an important message for us today. And there is, of course, the future reality of being with God. One of the ways that we may realize that is when we die. If you die as a Christian, you will go to be with the Lord. And 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says, absent from the body, 
presence with the Lord, present with the Lord. So that's one of the ways that we will experience that yet future reality. If you're still here, it's future. The other way that we will experience that is the rapture of the church. You know that Christianity is the only religion that offers a possibility that some will never taste death. The generation that is alive for the rapture of the church. Now, when does the rapture happen? That's a big debate. Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. That's a big debate. I'm a pre-tribber and I will thump your head for days on the topic. But if you're a post-tribber, I'm cool with you. You don't have to go to another church. You don't have to schedule office hours with me. You can if you want to. It's going to hurt. You can if you want to. I'm cool with that, but I'm a pre-tribber with a big club. If you're a post-tribber, I'm cool with you. That's cool. I'll explain it to you again on the way up. So arrogant. I was only mostly kidding. (laughs) But at the rapture of the church, whenever it happens, that is also a future promise of experiencing the presence of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, speaking of the rapture. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then... We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Amen. That is the intent of God that we would be with him. That is the purpose of the cross. And there is a future reality either through death or the rapture, whichever one comes first. And then there is the current reality. Spoken of in Hebrews 4.16, which says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in the time of need. So we don't have to wait for the future experience of the throne room of God. In a very real way, a spiritual for sure, but a real way we can be drawing near to God now. In fact, one of the exhortations of Hebrews is let us do that. Let us do it with confidence whenever you need help. I don't know about your life, but my life, that means like every day. (laughs) Every day when I need help, drawing near to God. Now, To encourage us in this, I want to get a glimpse of what that throne room is like ultimately as we go to Revelation chapter 4. The book of Revelation chapter 4, go there. The book of Revelation chapter 4, we're just going to read the whole chapter. It's only 11 verses. I'm not going to give any explanation, but you're just going to get a glimpse of this future thing that we're going to experience, but should be experiencing now in a very spiritual and real way. Revelation 4, starting in verse 1. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. 
Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Told you it's not an empty throne. It's an occupied throne. And he who was sitting was like jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. What does it look like? Is it actually a jasper and an emerald? No, but he's trying to use language to explain something that is indescribable. The throne room of God in the presence of God and language is escaping him. And the most beautiful things that he saw in his world because he didn't have LED lights like we do, the most beautiful thing that he ever saw were emeralds and jaspers. Apparently around the throne there is, like on our stage, these bright lights and colors, these beautiful things to behold. Then it says in verse four, and around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders. The traditional interpretation of this is that they are a representation of the church. 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. There you begin to see why we think it's a church. And from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings and full of eyes. Wow. Were around the throne and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. They never get bored of the presence of God. You see, we're missing something, aren't we? Because we're invited into the presence of God and somehow it seems mundane to us. I'm telling you, if the presence of God seems mundane, you ain't doing it right. I realize that we don't have the fullness of it yet until we get to heaven. I know, but there is a temporal reality that we should be experiencing and the presence of God should not be boring. And certainly when we get there, I mean, it would be enough just for us to see these six-winged, four-headed dudes, right? We, whoa, we'd be tripping out on them. But they ain't even tripping on themselves. They are absolutely enthralled with who God is. They never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. They never get over the presence of God. Verse 9. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders, again, a picture of the church, will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy art thou our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for thou didst create all things and become Because of thy will, they existed and were created. 
there we have just a little glimpse of the throne room of God, of that future thing that when we in glory, we will see face to face, realize that it's all about the throne and the one on it. That begins to give us a hint then about our daily lives. It's all about the one on the throne. The gnarliest ones there, these weird-headed six-winged creatures and, and the 24 elders, they fall down before the throne and they cast their crowns and they give glory and honor to him. This gives us a little hint of how to draw near to the Lord daily is to honor him in our daily living is to enter his courts with thanksgiving and his gates with praise, to enter in by giving glory to the Lord. How do we experience more of the throne of God in our lives? Is by practicing more of a life of praise to the one who is on the throne. Notice what happens is worship, adoration, submission, and attention. Worship, adoration, submission, and attention then is what we need to cultivate in our daily lives to make it akin to the throne room. Worship, adoration, submission, attention. We should be practicing these. Worship, adoration. A lot of you are real good on that part. Submission. Submission and attention. Giving the Lord attention. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 helps us with this. We have it on the screen. It says, if then you have been raised up with Christ, which is where we positionally are, keep seeking the things above. That's what we practically do according to the positional reality. If then you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Look what we do. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. There's a key point. Because we let our minds dwell on a lot of things. We meditate on a lot of things. We mull over a lot of things. We obsess about a lot of things. But the protocol for the Christian is to let our mind dwell on the things above, namely the throne and the one who is on it. And when we think about God, we're thinking about his character. And that then has an impact on our life when we begin to think about God's character. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll rein it in. Set your mind on things above daily, practically, not on the things of the earth. Why? Because verse 3 For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's a beautiful phrase that we need to lay hold of. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Need to practice the hidden life. Need to cultivate the hidden life. Begin to cultivate a life that's hidden in Christ. Answer that longing of his that he wants his children to come like little chickies under his wings, so to speak. Practice the hidden life in Christ. I don't know about you, but sometimes life is so hard, so overwhelming, it can be so disappointing that I need to just hide in Christ. I myself ball up on my couch or my bed like a little baby. I'm just this far from putting my my thumb in my mouth. (laughs) I ball up and I begin to practice hiding myself in Jesus Christ in the difficult times of life, times where I'm feeling rejected, times where I'm feeling attacked, when I'm not feeling accepted, when I'm feeling alone, when I'm feeling overwhelmed, when I'm feeling disappointed, I hide myself with Christ in God. 
I set my mind on the things above. I become like that little chick that gets under the wings of the mother and feels the warmth and hears the heartbeat. And you know what it does? It makes everything okay. It really does. It makes everything okay to know that my God is on the throne. He's in control and I'm there with him. And it's not a mere intellectual exercise. It's a heartfelt reality of being near God. If you're not practicing this, you must. The reality of this is spoken in Psalm 63. It's beautiful. Turn there. Psalm 63. Practicing the hidden life. Psalm 63. Look what the psalmist says in verse 1. O God, thou art my God. I shall seek thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh yearns for thee. In a dry and weary land where there's no water. Thus I have beheld thee in the sanctuary to see thy power and thy glory. Because thy loving kindness is better than life. Can anybody say amen? (laughs) Thy loving kindness, his chesed in the Hebrew, his mercy, his loving kindness, that essence of his character, it's better than life. So my lips will praise thee, verse four, so I will bless thee as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul is satisfied with marrow and fatness. I like the way the King James says it. My soul is satisfied with fat and fatness. I mean, weird words to say, I'm totally satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be lean of soul, lean of spirit. You shouldn't be spiritually emaciated. You should be spiritually fat. You should be satisfied with fat and fatness in the person of Jesus Christ by practicing the hidden life. The reality of the cross being with him. My soul is satisfied with fat and fatness and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Look at verse six. Now here's some practical tips. When I remember thee on my bed. Hey, let me be transparent for a minute. Is anybody like me? That sometimes at night when you go to bed, your mind just races and runs over and over with all the problems, with all the hurts, with all the criticism, with the rejections, with the why didn't he do this? Why did he do that? Why didn't she do this? How come they think this? Why isn't this working out? How come I never had that? If you're like me, Sometimes you find yourself up all night long meditating on everything that seems to be wrong. That's not God's heart for you. That seems to be fairly common to humanity. It's not God's heart for you. Look what the psalmist did who was satisfied with fat and fatness. He said, I remember thee on my bed. You need to change what you think about when you get in bed. I meditate on thee in the night watches. All through the hours of the night, have you ever watched a clock just tick hour after hour, 11, midnight, two, four, five, and you're still obsessing over that thing? 
He says, don't do that. Meditate on the person of Jesus Christ through every watch of the night. He says in verse seven, for thou hast been my help and in the shadow of thy wings, I sing for joy. He found himself hidden in the wings of God, so to speak. And so there's reason to sing. Then he says in verse eight, my soul clings to thee. Thy right hand upholds me. That's God's heart for you. That you would experience the upholding of his right hand. The warmth and the heartbeat of being under his wings. We need to allow our souls to cling to him by meditating on who he is. Our minds are bombarded with so many antichrist messages, with so much of the world, and it's so easy to get caught up in the things of this world, and we begin to try to find our identity in the world and our worth in the world, and we begin to love the approval of man, and when we don't get it, it starts to shipwreck us, and we have all these concerns about people and what they did and didn't do and finances and what we have and don't have. And we need to be meditating on the person of Jesus Christ because our life has been bought with a price and we're already seated in the heavenlies with him. And so practice the hidden life. I'm telling you, it's not ethereal. It's not theoretical. It's reality. That we can really have lives that are spent in the throne room with him. Now, we're going to look very quickly at three Old Testament vignettes, just little snapshots that help us think of this throne room reality. We're going to be back to the middle of Psalms, so stick a flyer or a finger in Psalms and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. You should have already been there today because it's the Bible reading for today. So it should already be warmed up in your Bible. Isaiah 6, page is already worn by you just pouring through it this morning. Isaiah chapter 6, thinking of the throne room reality and seeing how we get a right perspective. Not much to say, we'll just read it. Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. Stop right there, I can't resist. Darn it. Notice that something had to die in Isaiah's life for him to see the Lord. I don't want to make too much of it, but I think we can glean from it. Sometimes something has got to die in our lives for us to really see to the Lord, to get a fresh perspective. Sometimes there's something holding us back, being it a pain that we held on to or some sort of agenda or some big wall we built up or some wrong relationship. It's good from time to time when you're feeling disconnected from the Lord to say, hey God, is there anything in my life that's got to go for me to really connect with you? Is there something that instead of being a wing has become a weight? Is there something that instead of ushering me in has become a hindrance that's keeping me in the outer courts? It's good to ask yourself that. Might be an ideology, might be a sin, might be a hurt, might be a relationship. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. No small thing for an Old Testament Jew to say. I saw the Lord. No small thing for anybody to say. (laughs) I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He's on the throne. Lofty and exalted with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. Here's these freaky things again. And with two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. 
And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Okay, these seraphim little things. We often picture angels as these fat little Cupid guys. Not so. They're these super gnarly six-wing guys. They need two to fly. With two, they cover their feet because they're in the presence of a holy God. Just like God told Mo, take off your shoes, fool. You're on holy ground. They cover their feet. And then with two, they cover their eyes because they dare not even look upon his holiness. And these things are so majestic that when they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the threshold of the temple shakes. When you go to Israel with us, we will go through the rabbi's tunnel. We will see some of the foundation stones of the temple. We will see stones there that weigh hundreds of tons, single stones, 70 feet long that are foundations of the temple. When this angelic being, those rocks shook, that's how gnarly these things are. As gnarly as they are, what are they obsessed with? The presence of God. They never stop singing about God. That means that God is gnarly, gnarly, gnarly. (laughs) Verse five, notice a perspective change. Then I said, this is Isaiah, uh uh-oh. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Please notice that when he did what we're to daily do, entered into the presence of God, there was a perspective change. God was higher, he was lower. This is right and this is good. God was higher, he was lower. We need this in our lives. God was higher, Lofty and exalted. He was lower. Notice it shook the very foundations of that place where he was. Notice that he realized that he was lacking when he went into that place. You know, if all you do is spend your life in the presence of other people, you can end up looking pretty good. Especially you guys. If you just compare yourself to other people, you'll always be able to find somebody cheesier than you. And if you choose your company right, you can come out smelling like roses. We're not called to do that. We're called to get in the presence of God. And when we get in the presence of God, we realize, oh, he's higher and I'm lower. And Isaiah said, uh-oh. I didn't even realize it, but I'm a man of unclean lips. And everybody around me has unclean lips. There was a perspective change that was right and good. We need this change because if we just spend time in the world, we become like the world. We become like the world. And it's not until we enter into the presence of God that we realize, "Uh uh-oh, I shouldn't be like the world. I need to be like Jesus. I need to be less like the world and more like him. But if you're not practicing daily presence with God, then you could go weeks or months or years just being conformed to the image of the world and not even knowing it not even knowing it. We need to get in the presence of God to be adjusted. Now the Lord's so wonderful. Verse six, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sins are forgiven. Had to singe his lips right off his face to deal with them. (laughs) Thank you for the blood of Jesus. 
that he was pierced through for our transgressions, that our filthy lips don't need to be singed right off our face. We have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, but it's good to remember that he is holy and that we need that cleansing blood. And then the second change in perspective, verse eight. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. You know, I'm not sure what Isaiah was doing before, but as soon as he saw the Lord, he realized I need to be on mission. That's very important. God is on mission and he's invited us into his mission. He doesn't need us. He's already on mission. He's doing his work and he could do it better probably than, uh, than we could ever do it. Not probably, for sure. But because he's a loving father, he's invited us into mission. And when we get in the presence of God, we begin to realize, hey, God's doing something in the world around me. God's on mission and I need to be on mission. When we get in the presence of God, we have perspective change. He's high, I'm low. He's on mission, I better get on mission. And when God said, who are we gonna send? He said, here am I, send me. You see, if you find yourself consumed with the things of the world and your own agenda and your own wants, you haven't been practicing the presence of God. Because when you get in the presence of God, you realize that he's got an agenda. He's got a mission. And you begin to want to be about it. And when you begin to be about God's mission in your world around you, I'm telling you, life as a Christian gets exciting. That's when life as a Christian gets exciting is when you get on mission. The second vignette that I want to look at is 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Go there, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. A somewhat familiar story for us here at Reality, very important to us. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Okay, most of you know the story, but let's set up the scenario by reading the first three verses. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 1. Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Munites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was one of the good kings of Israel. Then some came to report Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea out of Aram, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, En Gedi. On our Israel trips, we always go to En Gedi, and we talk about the story. Verse 3. And Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. Very quickly, let me say that there will be times in life where you feel just like Jehoshaphat. He was doing the right thing and he was just minding his business and a multitude came against him. Anybody ever feel like that? You're just doing the right thing. You're trying to obey the Lord and serve the Lord and it feels like a multitude are coming against you. Jehoshaphat did the right thing. He turned his attention to seek the Lord. He wasn't superhuman. He was super scared. But he turned his attention to seek the Lord and he got others to do it with him. Verse six. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, art thou, uh, art thou not God in the heavens? Art thou not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in thy hand, so no one can stand against thee. Look what he says in verse 12. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. 
There's a great one. When in life you don't know what to do, put your eyes on Jesus Christ. I mean, this is like me all the time. Lord, I'm not sure what to do. It's overwhelming. It's difficult. Fix your eyes on the one who's on the throne. He's in control. You see what Judah and what Jehoshaphat are doing are entering into the throne room in a very practical way. Now look what it says, starting in verse 15. They pray to the Lord and a prophet comes and the prophet says in verse 15, listen all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz and you will find them there at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jurel. You need not fight this battle. Station yourselves. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out and face them for the Lord is with you. Notice how everything changed when they went into the throne room through prayer. They might have done a million different things. They were freaking out over the overwhelming odds. But now they begin to realize as they're practicing the presence of God that the battle belongs to the Lord. That if God is for us, who can be against us? And that God is faithful. And so in verse 21, and when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. And when they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the enemy. Wow. The Lord gave them a unique battle plan. It was just to go down into the battlefield and sing praises to God. You can imagine how stupid the enemy thought that was. There's the enemy all lined up with their armies and here comes the worship team, Dominic and Lazo and the boys. And then they come down in the battlefield in their silly clothes and they start singing praises to God. There's times in your life where that's all you'll be able to do. That's all you'll be able to do. There's nothing else you're going to be able to do but to just praise the Lord. You go ahead and praise the Lord. Look what the Lord did. The Lord set ambushes for the enemy and the Lord defeated the enemy and the enemy turned on themselves and destroyed one another. There's going to be times in life that are so difficult that you just got to go hide in Jesus Christ. That's okay. That's all right. He's way more than a crutch. People say, you Christians, you need a crutch. Dude, I don't need a crutch. I need a mama. I need a mama and a hot water bottle and a bed and a binky. I need all the above. It's okay, Christian, to say it's too much and to go hide in Jesus Christ and let him be your defender. That's exactly what he did for Israel. But when you do that, you go and you praise the Lord. Because as Proverbs says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. One final little vignette and we're done. 1 Samuel chapter 30. Toward the front of your Bible from where you are. 1 Samuel chapter 30.
1 Samuel chapter 30, we find David in one of his overwhelming circumstances, of which he experienced many. This one's a real toughie. Don't have time to set it all up. Let's just get to the main point. 1 Samuel chapter 30, starting in verse 1. Then it happened, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Worst case scenario. Unimaginable situation. Verse 4, Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep anymore. Now David's two wives had been taken captive. Mm, There's their names. Verse (laughs) 6, Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him for all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. Look at this. All of them experienced the same thing. The Amalekites came, they burned the city, they took the sons and the daughters and the wives, they carried them away. They come back after being at battle and their families are gone. They don't know if they're ever going to see him again. And what did the people do? What they often do, they say, let's kill the leader. Wasn't David's fault? He was out with you guys. But now, not only is David suffering his own loss, but they're saying, we want to kill you, David. We want to stone you. This is worst case scenario. I don't know if any of us have ever been in a situation this horrifying. I want you to see what David did. Last part of that verse. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He didn't have anyone else. There's going to be times like this in life, unfortunately. He didn't have anybody else. His wives were gone, his kids were gone, and his friends wanted to kill him. There was no one to turn to but God. And thankfully, David knew God. And because he knew God, he was able to encourage himself in God. He had to encourage himself. There was no pastor to come along and quote some verses to him. There wasn't a home group to go to. There wasn't anybody. He had to encourage himself in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, there will be times in life where we have to do this. And if you don't know the Lord, if you haven't already been practicing this, then it's hard to do. David could do it because he knew God. He knew the goodness of God. He knew the character of God. He knew the personality of God. He knew the faithfulness of God. And so in the moment of need, he could lay hold of faith by those things, meditate on those things, and encourage himself. He'd begin to speak to himself that God is good. God is faithful. God is kind. And even if everything else being taken away, I will still bless the Lord my God. And God is faithful to complete the work that he's began. Psalm 27, David wrote, I would have despaired. I would have freaked out unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Romans 8.28, if it was written, he would have quoted it. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. David encouraged himself in the Lord, meaning for us, 
entering into that throne room, getting the right perspective, getting the right perspective, seeing him in his glory, realizing that he's on his throne. Several verses just to quote that help us get toward this place. Psalm 48, we have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. We need to be people that think about God. Psalm 77, I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes diligent search. Meditating on God, singing about God. Verse 77 again, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. That's why it's so important to be in the Bible that you've got something to meditate on. Verse, uh, Psalm 119, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Psalm 119 again, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day. Psalm 119 again, my eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. Psalm 143, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. Psalm 145, I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. In Psalm 59, I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning for you have been my defense and my refuge in the day of trouble. And the Hebrew Christians were having a day of trouble. And so the author said, Jesus, our high priest, is the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father as a forerunner to take us into the throne room. And so brothers and sisters, don't only lay hold of it theologically and positionally for the future, lay hold of it today. Learn to practice the presence of God by thinking, meditating, singing about who he is. Get yourself hidden in Christ in the throne room where we realize his kingship, his dominion, his authority. In that place is protection from the lies, from wickedness. It's a place of repentance and restoration. It's a place of unity and hope. It's a place of refuge and strength. It's the place where our weaknesses are covered in his strength. Amen? Amen. Lord, help us. Help us with this wonderful reality this great availability. Help us to draw near to your presence. Lord, I'm aware that for many of us, we've never actually experienced this being hidden in you. Help us, Lord. Show us walls and hindrances, Uzziahs in our lives that need to die. Teach us, please, Lord, to quiet all the sounds of the world, all the competing voices, and to settle into your lap as our Father to hide ourselves into the shadow of your wings. Please, Lord, Holy Spirit, help your people. Jesus, you died that we might be with you. Lead us to that place. Bring us into that real intimate communion. We don't want religion that says someday. We want the reality of relationship that is right now. Bring us into your presence. Teach us to live those lives. Brothers and sisters, it's a great opportunity to do everything you can to get in the presence of God. Surely he's among us. 
Get on your face before the Lord. Call upon him. Think upon him. Rejoice in him. He's the ever-present one in the time of need.